Well, that was the opening music to 20th Century Fox's Gentleman's Agreement, released in 1947. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net or on iTunes. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews, and you'll find us on there. And uh, I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bob Johnson. Thank you. Uh, welcoming you back to our uh, classic movie reviews. Yeah, this is part two of what's turned into another epic uh, review, uh, similar to what we did with Double Indemnity. Uh, but Bob and I are thinking maybe we can get through this next part a little quicker, because I think most of the heavy lifting of the movie was done in the first hour in terms of character development and setting up everything that happens in the second hour of the film. I had only one thing to kind of kick it off, and that was that uh, for Daryl F. Zanuck, uh, I was reading this. B'nai Brith International uh, awarded him the Man of the Year uh, Award in 1948 because of this movie. I thought that was kind of a nice accolade for Mr. Zanuck. And then the other thing is that you were saying this morning, our listenership keeps growing, so that's always good. Yeah, we're getting close to 200 subscribers now, so I think uh, our our universal monster movie marathon will will <laughs> will skyrocket us over 200. <laughs> we'll head north. Yeah. On our on our listenership, especially with Abbott and Costello. Yeah, for sure. Classic. Classic. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but actually they meet all the universal monsters except for the Gill Man. Oh, that's right. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. It was too dry. Let's just uh, pick it up. So just to recap, uh, last episode, we left off at a dinner party where Phil and Kathy, who are the two or two of the main leads, were talking with Professor Lieberman, and Phil was in the dinner line talking with Anne about the fact that they were going to announce their engagement to be married, uh, and that they were going to announced that to Kathy's family and Anne sort of gave him a funny look and I think she said something I watched it again last night she said I'd like the newsreel rights to that which sort <laughs> of <laughs> sort of got Phil's uh radar up like huh what I wonder wonder why <laughs> and we soon found out yeah and then the next scene uh we find out that Dave uh Phil's uh, childhood friend Dave is coming home from the army and that he's actually on his way and there's a really neat thing that uh, there's a really neat scene between Grandma and Tommy, who's Phil's son. They're in the kitchen, and Grandma's getting lunch ready for for Tommy. And she says, "Well, how about some fruit in your lunch?" And he says, "I don't like fruit." And she goes, "Well, how about a banana?" And she goes, "Oh, I love bananas." And it reminded me, didn't weren't bananas pretty hard to come by in the '40s? I mean, it, they're everywhere now, but I think back then it was kind of a treat. Was that is that right? Oh, I. Th- I remember that they were in short supply in Montana in uh, the 40s and 50s, yeah, especially the wintertime. Because yeah, they, uh, they don't have the logistics that they have now with no. uh, transportation of fruit and all that. So and he, my, mother, even, my mother, even in her 80s and early 90s, always wondered what the price of bananas was because they had been so expensive in her youth. And then, and then the next scene is uh, Tommy runs in to say something to his dad. His dad uh, is in the shower, and Tommy says, Say, Pop, huh? are we Jewish? Jimmy Kelly said we were. Our janitor told his janitor. 
Well, what'd you say to Jimmy Kelly? I told him I'd ask you. Remember that movie that Kathy and I took you to? Sure. And how you asked if things like that really happened? Kathy said they were pretending. Yeah, well, I'm pretending that I'm Jewish for the stuff that I'm writing now. Oh, you mean like a movie or a game? Yeah, something like that. Look, Tom, I'd like it if you'd promise not to tell anybody it's a game. Would you promise that? Okay, sure. All right. You know, the thing that I thought of there was that I don't think Phil really has a conception at this point of what this pretending to be Jewish is going to do to to Tommy. You know, he didn't he didn't think this through all the way. I, I wonder uh, in in terms of how this is going to uh, come back and affect his son. I think that also is a topic when uh, Dave and Phil talk about how exposed Phil is because he hasn't experienced it like Dave has. I'm doing a series on anti-Semitism with a special angle. That's interesting. Interesting? Well, don't you want a good stiff series in a big national magazine? Me? Sure. You sound bored. Oh, I'm anything but. It's just that... Well, I'm on the sidelines of anti-Semitism. It's your fight, brother. Okay, I get it. Listen, I don't care about the Jews as Jews. It's the whole thing, not the poor, poor Jews. Well, you know what I mean. Don't force me to make with the big words. Anyway, what's this special angle you've got? Well, I've been doing it for a while. I'm saying I'm Jewish, and it works. Well, you fool. <laughs> you crazy fool. And it's working? It works. It works too well. I've been having my nose rubbed in, and I don't like the smell. Yeah. I can guess. You're not insulated yet, Phil. It's new every time, so the impact must be quite a business on you. You mean you get indifferent to it in time? No, but you're concentrating a lifetime thing into a few weeks. You're making the thing happen every day, going out to meet it. The facts are no different, Phil. It just telescopes it. it makes it hurt more. What do, you, what do you think he meant by that? I mean... He's Jewish himself, but he says that I, you know, I'm not so much concerned about the Jews as Jews. Well, I, my take on that was that he'd gotten back from being in the army in Europe during the uh, the, the battles that went on, and I think you know the experience in the war and the death and the, uh, the camps uh, and just the overall ugliness of the of the whole thing. I think he was just trying to say I'm fed up with all that stuff, all racism, all prejudices, and it's not just uh, anti-Semitism, it's everything else that he's seen and, and lived through. Because even back then, they had uh, segregated army units with African Americans, and that Japanese were in a segregated unit, and those uh, units performed at, you know, outstanding work in the war, but they were they were never really uh, integrated into the whole thing. I think he's just tired of the whole thing. Yeah, that's kind of how I read it as well. Well, the next scene is uh, Anne and, and Dave are at the at a restaurant. This is the scene that we talked about earlier where the, that drunk patron of the restaurant, he comes in and says something to Dave about he doesn't like uh, officers. And Dave says, well, you, you, you and me, bud, we, don't, we both don't like officers. And, and then he, that guy, that drunk guy, says something about uh, Dave being Jewish. And, man... Dave just about decked that guy right there and then. The look on his face was just like he wanted to yeah. lay him out flat. 
And I watched the look on Gregory Peck's character's face, and he was surprised by that. And at the same time, I think he's becoming aware that this is going to happen. Yeah, that was the that was the first time that he'd really seen Dave get so upset about something, and then kind of experience what that was like. But still, a little a little bit on the sidelines. I was thinking when I watched that scene just how excellent a job John Garfield did as in playing Dave the the character and also he John Garfield uh was a Jew and and had experienced probably some of the same thing that was in the character yeah he did a great job i really liked his uh his character and just the way he he was a he was like a great listener and very understanding and and supportive so then, so then uh, Phil and Kathy head up to Darien, which I guess is a suburb of New York. I Well, I don't know how close it is, actually, but they took the train there. And this is the town where Kathy's from. Everything's, you know, we, we kind of been warned earlier in the movie that maybe things weren't going to be so great at this party because of the way people were in that part of the the area that he thought he was Phil thought he was going to have a lot more kind of anti-Semitic uh, comments and behavior, but everybody at the party seems really nice and they're very complimentary of Phil and it's not what we were expecting at all. And Kathy says something to her sister about how mind if I steal Kathy away? Jane, you look beautiful. Oh, so do you. It's a wonderful party, isn't it? Dear? It's going beautifully, my dear. I haven't seen the Baskins. Oh, didn't I tell you? Joe called and said he had that dreadful arthritis he's always getting, and they said they were so sorry. Mm-hmm. And where are the Howards and the Burlicks, or are they coming later for dinner? Um, no. They all decided to go to Hot Springs at the last moment. I-, I thought I mentioned it. Jane, dear, I'm in this just as deeply as fear. I feel just as strongly about it as he does. But darling, what do you mean? You know what I mean. Just a little careful screening. Just the safe ones. And she suspects that they that her sister kind of cherry picked the guest list so that only people that would be okay with Phil being Jewish would actually be there which i don't know i don't know if Phil really picked up on that at that point i think he just sort of thought it was a nice party i think so plus he was surrounded by several women that kept asking him questions uh, about who he was and all of that i think he kind of got into that and and forgot some of the subtle things that had been had taken place. That... Then we 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 find out that Kathy has this uh, bungalow or this cottage that she's been building and putting together for years, and that this is where Kathy and Phil could live once they get married. Uh, and it's it's a really nice scene, and it it brings out another one of the themes of the movie, which is not really related to anti-Semitism, but uh, Kathy says... Somehow it became a symbol to me of many things. Sometimes when you're troubled and hurt, you pour yourself into things that can't hurt back. Can you understand that? Sure. I've done it myself with work. Well, I poured all my hopes into this place. And when it was finished... I somehow knew that Bill and I were finished. I knew I couldn't live here with someone I didn't really love. It was always more than just a house to me, a place I owned. It meant everything I hoped for. Marriage, children, good life. I knew I couldn't live here alone. I knew that for sure. And you've never lived here at all? No, never. No one has. 
I stay up at James and I come down here and walk through the house, poke with the curtains a bit, sit out here. And for a long while, I hated it, really hated it. And I could never let it go. And now I know why. I was right not to settle for second best. I was right to keep hoping because it's all come true. Darling, you and I are going to be so happy here. Miss House and I, we were waiting for you. I was always waiting for you, I think. And I thought it was a really nice scene. It just, it really humanizes Kathy and, and really shows kind of a side of her that I don't think we've seen up to that point. I liked it. I think it also was a, a nice comparison or contrast to some of the other stuff that we know is going on. And, you know, the, in the subtle uh, anti-Semitism, this house was absolutely gorgeous. It's like, wow. Yeah, I'd like to live there. And, and they, as they're walking up to the cottage, uh, you can tell that it's on a set, but I really liked it because even though I could tell it was on a set, it was just so well done. And you don't see scenes like that in movies anymore where you can look back and say, well, that that's obviously like a painting or some kind of photographic effect in the background, but it just gave it a real cozy kind of a feel, and I think that's exactly what they were going for. We cut ahead. I don't know how far we cut ahead in time, but we... We're two days before the wedding in the next scene, and Anne, Dave, Phil, and Kathy are back in New York having coffee, and they're talking about the wedding and the honeymoon, and Kathy mentions that they're going to Flume Inn, and Anne goes, no, you can't go to Flume Inn, that, that inn is restricted. And it was just fascinating to me to think that there were places that were known to be restricted to Jews. This, you know, Kathy didn't realize it, and Phil didn't, but, but Anne knew about it. Phil gets pretty indignant, and he says that he's going to go. It doesn't matter. He's still going to, they're still going to honeymoon there. And Dave says that, you know, you can't pin him down, Phil. It's just, you can't, it's just not worth it. And again, we're kind of running into this where Phil is, is experiencing all this new, and he's very uh, indignant. And Dave has sort of like been through all this before, and he's kind of like, but, you know, Phil, it's not that easy, you know. <laughs> And I think Phil, since he hadn't experienced it firsthand, has to find out about that. I was thinking, too, that inn was like out of a uh, uh, magazine for great places to stay. And the restrictions that applied would not have been, I don't know about that inn in the story, but there were restrictions on uh, religious beliefs, uh, cultural, ethnic, you know, you name it. There were lots of places before the public accommodations acts well and and this gets i think this gets to the um title of the movie which is gentleman's agreement i could not figure out why they called it that uh but it started dawning on me here and and actually uh uh, kathy uses that phrase gentleman's agreement a little bit later in the movie but none of these none of these restrictions quote-unquote restrictions were ever written down or really even talked about that much it was like this unspoken code that you know we just don't serve these kinds of people whatever those kinds of people might be depending on i guess where you were or who you were with well the the one exception in my uh experience or knowledge would be in terms of african-american relations and segregation you know with blacks only whites only 
which extended not just in the south but all over the country and even in Seattle there was an area around uh well I'm not going to even say the district cuz I'll get it wrong but it was it was uh, pretty clearly segregated yeah i know i know uh, which place i know what you're talking about yeah and it and it wasn't uh written really it was but again it was more that gentleman's agreement type of a thing i mean that's kind of a terrible word or phrase for it but that's what i think that's why they named the movie gentleman's agreement that scene when when phil goes to flume in though that was that was that was really oh. well done how do you do mr green how do you do in answer to your question, may I inquire, are you? Uh, that is, uh, do you follow the Hebrew religion yourself? Or is it that you just want to make sure? I've asked a simple question. I'd like to have a simple answer. Well, you see, we do have a very high-class clientele, and, uh, well, naturally. Then you do restrict your guests to Gentiles. Well, I would say that, Mr. Green. But in any event, there seems to be some mistake because we don't have a free room in the entire hotel. But if you'd like, perhaps I can fix you up at the Brewster Hotel down near the station. I'm not staying at the Brewster. Look, I'm Jewish and you don't take Jews. That's it, isn't it? I never said that. If you don't accept Jews, say so. Don't raise your voice to me, Mr. Green. You speak a little more quietly, please. Do you or don't you? Mr. Green, I'm a very busy man. Now, if you want me to phone for a cab or room at the Brewster, I'll do so. Otherwise... Otherwise, what? That's such an intense scene in so many ways. I just uh, and the look on Gregory Peck's face at the end of that encounter. There was a, there was a part there when uh, I thought he was going to reach across the desk and throttle the hotel manager, but. You know, it, it gets back to what Dave said earlier. You can't pin him down because, you know, Phil, Phil just out, outright asks. You know, he says, "Is your hotel restricted?" It's not like the manager gets security there and like hauls him out of the hotel. He just dings his little bellman bell, and the bellman picks up Phil's uh, suitcases and walks him out of the hotel, and and that was that. And it there was no real drama, but. The, like you said, the look on Phil's face and the look on the manager's face pretty much told you everything you needed to know. You know, I've, I tried to put myself into the shoes of the Gregory Peck uh, character, and you're at that counter, and that happens to you, and then you have to turn around and walk out through the lobby, and every person in the lobby is looking at you. I'm like, what could be more demeaning? I can't, it, it, it'd be hard to imagine just how awful that would feel. Oh, totally. And I, I, totally. So they captured exactly what I think they wanted to in that scene. And I don't know if you caught this, but uh, the second time I watched it, I, I caught the look on the bellman's face. Yes, yes. He just looks so smug and so superior. Yeah. And it was like little little details like that is why I think this movie is a 10 out of 10. And I also think it is more powerful because it doesn't involve any physical violence or action. It's all... What social you see pressure and how you react yeah. to it just it's the social pressure and the social stigma and yeah it's it's no physical violence at all so phil gets back home and he realizes that that whole thing was kind of a waste of time and uh he's been thinking a lot about dave because dave's having a hard time finding a place to live in new york or around new york and he says to kathy that you know, maybe Dave could have the cottage instead of uh, Phil and Kathy living there. Maybe Dave and his family could live there. And 
Kathy says, no, it wouldn't work because it'd be too uncomfortable for Dave. And this is where she says that there's a gentleman's agreement where no one will sell or rent to a Jew. And Phil just <laughs> loses it. He's he he gets so upset. And Kathy poor Kathy doesn't understand what Phil is getting so upset about. She's in her mind. She's just kind of stating the facts. This is the way it is. And Phil is not okay with that. You know, he wants Kathy to be more indignant. He wants Kathy to be more angry about this and and to stand up for her beliefs. And, it gets more intense soon after that, too. Well, and, and to me, this is like where the train had, has been building up steam throughout the first uh, hour and a half, and this is where it's picked up full speed and is heading Definitely. down a hill <laughs> toward, a, toward a ravine where there's no track. You know, it's like, this is like, this got really intense. So the next scene is is Tommy comes running in, and he's really upset, and he needs, he's you can tell that he's been crying. Tom, will you please? Kathy and I are talking. But, Pop, I... Tom, what is it? What's the matter? Did you have a fight? Argument with one of the guys? They call me a dirty Jew. And a stinking guy. Oh, darling, it's not true. It's not true. You're no more Jewish than I am. It's just a horrible mistake. Kathy! Come with me, Tom. We'll talk about it in a minute. Somebody sock somebody. No, they just yelled. It was at our corner. One was a kid from school. They were playing hop, and I asked, could I play too? And the school and said, no dirty little Jew could play with them. And they all yelled those other things. I started to speak, and then they all yelled. My father has a long curly beard and turned and ran. Why did they pop? Why? Do you want to tell them that you weren't really Jewish? No. That's good. See, there's a lot of kids just like you, Tommy, who are Jewish, and if you said it, it would be sort of admitting that there was something bad in being Jewish and something swell and not. They wouldn't fight. They just ran. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of grown-ups just like that, too, Tom. Only they do it with wisecracks instead of yelling. Okay. Sure. <laughs> oh boy. God, that was a, that was the best scene of the movie to me. It's so intense with the little boy. He did do it. Uh, Dean Stockwell did an amazing job in that. I tell you. He's he's such a great actor and 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 great direction too and 
And also great acting by by Gregory Peck in that scene to to really come across as sort of the caring, concerned father. Phil and Kathy have it out after that, and basically it looks like things are just over before b- between them because Kathy thinks that Phil is trying to do an impossible thing, and she says, "You can't help who you are," you know. And she's, "I can't help." She says, "I can't help that I'm Christian." Doesn't mean that I feel great about it or that I that I wish that I couldn't, you know, change the way things are, but that's just how they are. Uh, we cut to a scene of uh, uh, Phil is in bed and he looks like he's been crying too actually yeah uh and ann and dave get home because they've been out on the town for one last kind of night night out before dave has to leave and dave starts talking to him about what happened and dave says tommy got called dirty jew and kiked by some kids down the street came home pretty badly shaken up now you know it all that's the place they really get at you kids man that was a good scene and we hear a little bit about dave and what happened to dave in the war as well and also about what happened to dave's kids when they were excluded from a camp a summer camp because of their faith yeah that was so terrible you know i i another person in the movie that we haven't said too much about is uh, celeste holmes character and she won the academy award for her part but i thought here's a here's a really strong person with a very open mind, a very open approach. And I'm thinking, wow, that character is, is, is really understands what's going on and is uh, squared away. And I kept thinking at this point, because I, I, I kind of knew what the end was going to be, but I thought, well, she and Dave would make a perfect couple. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so does she, she thinks they would make a perfect couple. Yeah. As well. She, yeah. well, and, and I think, Anne might, Anne and Dave might be the most, uh, and maybe Mr. Menifee too, although it's a little bit harder to tell with him. But I think they might be the most sort of well-grounded characters in the film that that kind of have their heads on the the, the straightest, you know. I would add to that, uh, Grandma. And Grandma, yeah, good point, yeah. Grandma. Yeah. Uh, that scene though, the, you know, the back-to-back scenes be, between uh, Fumar in Fumar in and uh, uh, Flumin. Fumin and uh, Tommy coming home. Those two scenes are just amazing. It's so intense and well done. Well, and, and then everything after that is sort of like, uh, I think the word is denouement or something. It's kind of like that was the that was the peak of the drama and the intensity, and then it's sort of like coming down off of that. This is where we uh, Phil publishes his story, and the it gets out that Phil's been pretending to be Jewish, and Phil really has it out with Mrs. Miss Wales, his assistant, and the reaction that she has, and the fact that she sort of like changes her idea of Phil, and Phil's like, "You mean there is some difference between Jews and Christians? Well, look at me, look at me hard. I'm the same man I was yesterday. That's true, isn't it? Why should you be so astonished, Miss Wales? You still can't believe that anybody would give up the glory of being a Christian for even eight weeks, can you? That's what's eating you, isn't it?" Now, if I tell you that that's anti-Semitism, your feeling of being Christian is better than being Jewish, you're going to tell me that I'm heckling you again, or that I'm twisting your words around, or that it's just facing facts, as someone else said to me yesterday. Face me now, Miss Wales. Come on, look at me. 
Same face, same eyes, same nose, same suit, same everything. Here, take my hand. Feel it. Same flesh as yours, isn't it? No different today than it was yesterday, Miss Wales. The only thing that's different is the word Christian. There's so many mm-hmm. great speeches in this movie, great lines. Uh, and Phil, I think Phil sort of like spent all of his energy on this one story, and he goes in to talk to Mr. Minifee and says that he's moving back to California. And I think it's partly because he and Kathy kind of fell apart as well. And then Phil's back in his office, and Anne's there reading the first few paragraphs. And she says, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how you've lived this long spending so much juice on it, you know, on fighting, <laughs> fighting this. And he's like, oh, yeah. now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, a, she's a really amazing uh, woman. And then uh, she invites Phil over for some drinks to talk about everything that's been going on. And this is where she basically proposes to to, to Phil. Uh, she says that the Cathys everywhere are afraid. And it's it's not just one little action. It's it's it, It's got to be with, you know, everybody. Everybody needs to stand up and, and say that this kind of behavior is wrong. And that... She thinks Kathy's not a good, wouldn't make a good enough wife for Phil, and that that she would be the kind of person that would be able to be a good wife to him. We don't actually get an answer from Phil; it just fades to black. Right. I. I. I and yeah, I was like, I was "Well, thinking, is that how? <laughs> are they going to get married? Uh, you know, is is he thinking about that?" Uh, and then we get to the scene that I really like, which is Dave and Kathy. Had, they're having dinner, and Kathy had f- uh, phoned up Dave because she been feeling really awful and she starts talking about how she'd been at a dinner party and there had been one man there who told she called it a naughty little joke about a jew and kathy says that she despised him for it but that she didn't do anything about it and dave says well exactly what you know what did you do what did anybody else there do and he says i wonder if you'd feel so sick now kathy if you'd nailed him on it and kathy starts to see the truth of what dave is saying and and she she finally realizes why Phil had been getting so upset with her because she'd never gotten upset herself about this kind of behavior, that she'd just been letting it slide, letting it slide. I think this is the real uh, point of the movie is the fact that if everybody just kind of lets this kind of behavior go, then it will grow and it will prosper and it will spread. I think this scene is the one of many that I've seen John Garfield do in many movies where he, he has the appearance of a tough guy and, you know, can take care of himself and no nonsense. But at the same time, when he's t- talking to Kathy, he's very open and direct and uh, j- just a, a really, uh, there's more to him than the tough guy image. And, and he, he played that part in a lot of different movies so well. And that scene really wraps up a lot of things in that one in that one uh, restaurant scene. There's only two scenes left in the movie, actually. So there's one where we're back in Phil's apartment, uh, and Grandma's been reading the story, and she says, I wish your father could have read this, Phil. He'd have liked it. He'd have liked this. Driving away from the inn, I knew all about every man or woman who'd been told the job was filled when it wasn't. Every youngster who'd ever been turned down by a college or a summer camp. I knew the rage that pitches through you when you see your own child shaken and dazed. From that moment, I saw an unending attack by adults on kids of seven and eight and ten and twelve. 
on adolescent boys and girls trying to get a job or an education or in a medical school. And I knew that they had somehow known it too. They, those patient, stubborn men who argued and wrote and fought and came up with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They knew that the tree is known by its fruit and that injustice corrupts the tree. That its fruit withers and shrivels and falls at last to that dark ground of history where other great hopes have rotted and died. For equality and freedom remain still the only choice for wholeness and soundness in a man or in a nation. Your father would have liked to have you say that, Phil. Not enough of us realize it, Ma. Time's getting short. Not enough people and the time's running out. You mean Kathy? Well, not just Kathy. All the Kathys. Everywhere. You know something, Phil? I suddenly want to live to be very old. Very. I want to be around to see what happens. The world is stirring in very strange ways. Maybe this is the century for it. Maybe that's why it's so troubled. Other centuries had their driving forces. What will ours have been when men look far back to it one day? Maybe it won't be the American century after all, or the Russian century, or the atomic century. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Phil, if it turned out to be everybody's century, when people all over the world, free people, found a way to live together? I'd like to be around to see some of that, even the beginning. I may stick around for quite a while. It, it's just, I love this scene. Yes. Everything yeah. about it. And then Dave, like, rushes in, doesn't say a word to anybody, picks up the phone, dials a number, and we're like, what? what's going on here? And then we find out that he's accepting that big job offer because uh, Kathy has uh, given him or, or is renting to him the, the cottage uh, out in the suburbs and that Kathy's going to spend the summer up there dishing it back to anyone that dishes anything out to him. And this dawn, you know, this look of dawning... At, you know, comprehension crosses Phil's face and he just runs out of the apartment and we see the next scene is uh, Phil uh, at the door of Kathy's apartment. He rings the doorbell. He waits. Uh, Kathy opens the door and there's no dialogue at all. It's just the two of them. They look at each other for about a good 10 seconds and then he steps into the apartment they embrace and then we fade to black and and that's the end and i was just like wow what an amazing movie that's that's what i thought when i watched it the second time and it just fades to black like that i just loved it oh it's it's so well done it's amazing i can't really add much to what we've covered well i just wanted to give you my overall thoughts on it just because i i i'd been taking notes as i watched it and and uh i think i probably have 8 pages of notes total but if I were to condense this down, I would say that it's a movie about a father and a son, about a man and his mom, and about a man and his work. It's about anti-Semitism. It's about love and relationships. It's about being alone and being afraid of being alone. It's about coming to grips with our own prejudices and misconceptions. And it's about facing our fears and overcoming them. And it's all of those things wrapped up into two hours of just amazing dialogue and, and direction and cinematography. And like I said in our, our part one, there's not a single scene 
that you could cut from this movie. I think if you cut anything from the movie, it would, it would detract from from the overall effect. It's just an ab- absolutely outstanding film. Ten plus out of ten, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for sure. So, next time on Classic Movie Reviews, we're going to be talking about another movie from the 40s. An English movie. An English uh, movie that was uh, recommended by one of our viewers, or, no, sorry, listeners, not viewers. Uh, and it's uh, called Brief Encounter, and it's directed by David Lean. It's not yeah, he, a toy. He, he did some great movies. Like Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, yeah. I think that's a David Lean movie. And this is not a 20th Century Fox movie. I had to go buy the DVD for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Which company produced this? Um, Janus Films. Oh, right. But okay. I think they're presenting it. I'm not sure who the... Oh, Pinewood Films was the original company that put it, put it out in 1945. And this is a 2010 Criterion Collection DVD. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. It was remade, I think, in the 80s or the 70s. But based on what I read in IMDb, this is the sort of definitive version of this uh, story. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be quite a change of pace from uh, Gentleman's Agreement, that's for sure. And then we head into our Universal Monster Movie Marathon. Where we're ah. gonna we're gonna watch a whole bunch of Universal monster movies and review them, and we're we're gonna end it on uh, is it Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? I think <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. Yes. So. It's the entire crew of monsters, but they start out with uh, actually I think the first one they meet is Bela Lugosi and as uh, Dracula and the Wolfman. Yeah. So I think we'll There's I a... think we'll uh, we won't watch. We've already done the Creature from the Black Lagoon, so we don't need to do that one again. But I think if we watched uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, we could even throw in the Mummy and Dracula if we really want to do the full thing. But then we'll also do uh, <laughs> we'll also do Abbott and Costello meet, meet Frankenstein. So we may, we may, that may be over over uh, doing the monster genre. Yeah. Wow. Maybe we'll focus on Frankenstein this time around, and we can pick up uh, Dracula and Wolfman later. <laughs> Anyway, this has been All fun. Right. I really have enjoyed talking with you about this, and I think it's uh, it goes beyond just the movie. It was sort of a whole social commentary on. Until next time, uh, which will be next week, uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm Bob Johnson, and we hope that you enjoy a good week of movie watching. went to a party Saturday night, a birthday party at the neighbors. Uh-huh. And it was a real mixed group. And the music was amazing. They got a DJ. Oh, awesome. They're playing all this playing all this uh, Hispanic music. And our neighbor and his wife were there. He's a really nice guy. Boy, he was getting into the music because it was that Latin beat <laughs> that he plays. Oh yeah. Oh man, that was what an evening. I mean, we had to come home finally because we we're getting late, but man, oh man. It was like uh 
adult aerobics to really, really good music. Nice. Wow. Yeah. The the uh, urban lifestyle. Yeah. You're living it up in Los Angeles. Yep. (laughs) I felt I was 104 years old yesterday morning when we woke up. My God. I wonder. I wondered how Pete and Juanita felt. (laughs) Probably the same. He's 79, and his wife leans over to me because the four of us were sitting together, and she says, "God, I'm glad we're an age where we can sit here and not have to dance all night, or I'd never make it home." 